reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, January 25th, 2023. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. Starting on today's front page, our first article headline reads, Reynolds signs bill to shift funds to private schools. Governor, for the first time, we're funding students instead of a system. By Caleb McCullough of the Gazette Lee Des Moines Bureau. Surrounded by school choice advocates and private school students, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed an expansive private school education assistance bill into law Tuesday, just hours after Republican lawmakers delivered her top legislative priority after three years of trying. All public school students and thousands of private school students will become eligible to receive nearly $7,600 education savings account per year to pay for tuition and other expenses at a private school. The program is expected to cost $107 million in the first year, and by 2027, when phased in, will cost $345 million. It was the first bill of the three-week-old legislative session to be signed into law after a flurry of activity over the last two weeks to fast-track it to Reynolds' desk. For the first time, we're funding students instead of a system, Reynolds said. We're rejecting the idea that the answer to improving education is simply throwing more money into the same system. Opponents of the law say it will siphon money out of public schools, fund unaccountable private institutions, and devote tax money to schools that could turn away students with disabilities or families whose values don't align with theirs. In hours of floor debate Monday night, Democrats told stories of students with disabilities who were denied a private school education and said much of the public money would go to wealthy families who already pay for private school. The bill passed in both houses on Mon- in the House on Monday night and in the Senate early Tuesday. It passed 55 to 45 in the House, where all Democrats and nine Republicans voted against it. In the Senate, it passed 31 to 18. Three Republicans joined Democrats in void- voting against it. Democratic Senator Tony Bisignano of Des Moines was not present. The bill will divert essential funds from 92% of our student population and send the funds to just a select population of students admitted into private schools. Iowa State Education Association President Mike Boronik said in a statement, Tonight, some legislators ignored the wishes of most Iowans and voted to spend taxpayer money on private interests. Reynolds said the program is not at odds with public schools. She said the vast majority of students are expected to remain in public schools and said the bill will allow public school districts more freedom to use their state funds. Public schools are the foundation of our educational system, Reynolds said. And for most families, they'll continue to be the option of choice, but they aren't the only choice. And for some families, a different path may be better for their children. Public school districts will receive about $1,200 for each student living in that district who is enrolled in a private school. The law also allows schools to use unspent categorical funding designated for other purposes to increase teacher salaries. Supporters say that that change will give public schools more flexibility. I was trying to figure out how can we provide them flexibility, especially in rural Iowa, to be able to increase salaries so that we can be competitive, Reynolds told reporters after signing the bill. What we saw when we were looking at that was over $100 million in unspent funding. Trish Wilger, the executive director of Iowa Alliance for Choice in Education, said she was excited to see the bill signed into law. Wilger's organization was advocating for a universal education savings account system before the legislative session began. We worked on it so long and so hard that it doesn't seem quite real yet, but I'm just thrilled for the opportunities it's going to bring to Iowa families, she said. The law will provide choice for parents who want to send their children to a non-public school 
but don't have the financial ability to do so, Wilger said, as well as parents with children already in private school who are struggling to afford it. Wilger acknowledged some families with high incomes may apply for the money, but she said it mirrors the public school system in which students receive the same services, regardless of income. We feel that this is a similar kind of scenario where the funding is following the student and not going to the institution, she said. But not everyone in the Capitol was in support. During Reynolds' remarks in the rotunda, Senator Claire Selsey, a Democrat from West Des Moines, yelled, nobody wants vouchers and rural Iowa doesn't want vouchers from the second floor of the Capitol. Reynolds said the state will release a request for proposals for a third-party company to administer the program. Parents will be able to sign up for updates on a state website. Similar to Iowa's 529 college savings plan, the accounts will be created in the Treasury under the control of the Iowa Department of Education and privately administered. We're going to continue to make sure that we have accountability and oversight as we're working on the RFP, Reynolds told reporters. We want to make sure that we do have transparency and accountability in place. Continuing on today's front page, prosecution, Jackson New Family was dead. Jury deliberations begin after six days of testimony by Trish Mahaffey. Alexander Jackson made a 911 call on June 15, 2021, saying someone broke into our house and I've been shot and my other family member has been shot, but he couldn't give a good description of the suspect who executed his family, a prosecutor said Tuesday in her closing argument. Police arrived with limited information and they didn't know what to expect, First Assistant Lynn County Attorney Monica Slaughter said. As they approached the house at 4414 Oakleaf Court Northeast, they felt like something was off. They could, they could be heard in body camera video saying they thought it might be a swatting prank call because it didn't seem right. Jackson told police he was shot in the foot and his dad was shot. Jackson could only describe the suspect as a man. He said he thought the intruder came in the back door, but told police, I'm not an expert. Jackson told police he thought his sister was in her bedroom, but he never called out to check on her. Sabrina, I've been shot. Dad's been shot. He didn't do that. He didn't holler to his mother. Dad's been shot. Jackson didn't call out for them because he knew they were dead, Slaughter said. Jackson, 22, is on trial for three counts of first-degree murder. He is accused of fatally shooting his father, Jan Jackson, 61, mother, Melissa Jackson, 68, and his sister, Sabrina Jackson, 19, in their house. The family members were found with multiple gunshot wounds in different rooms in the home. The trial wrapped up Monday, following six days of testimony. The jury started deliberating at 12.07 p.m. Tuesday. They will resume deliberations at 8.30 a.m. today. Slaughter said Jackson was crouched down by the sofa where an investigator said a pile of shell casings was found and shot his father three times when he came down the stairs. Jan Jackson fell face it face first into the carpet, and then Jackson stood over him and shot him two more times in the back of the head. Sabrina was found in her bed, Slaughter said. She had a gunshot wound to her eye and another one into her torso. Slaughter said Jackson was standing in the doorway when he shot her. Melissa Jackson was found lying on the floor in the master bedroom. Several shell casings were left near the room's doorway, where Slaughter said Jackson fired three shots. One grazed her scalp, one penetrated her right temple. The shot into her left eye was fired at close range. Jackson was inches away from his mother when he shot her in the face, Slaughter said. He wanted to make sure each family member was dead. Slaughter said an investigator testified that he had to watch a YouTube video to learn how to load the 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle. It was unique. Three prints were found on the rifle. There were palm prints on the left hand and right side of the gun stock. The left palm print was good quality, no smudges or smears. It matched Jackson. 
The right print also matched him. The third was poor quality and not identified. Slaughter said the prints on the gun were consistent with someone holding it, muzzle pointed down, like Jackson shooting his left foot. Slaughter said there was blood spatter evidence in Jackson's bedroom to show he shot himself in the foot. He used a belt as a tourniquet. The bloody footprints don't enter the room, she pointed out. The prints only exit the room after he shot himself. Jackson's lawyer, Tyler Johnston, in his closing, said jurors should ask questions because this is a case of circumstantial evidence. During his clothing, closing, Johnston used video screens to display photos of Jackson and his family over the years. He said the photos were all over their house. Why would Alex Jackson kill his family? Johnston said it makes no sense. They were a happy family. Witnesses who knew Jackson, friends, his band director, a Boy Scout leader, didn't know of any issues. They saw him interact normally and happily with his parents. Jackson had no history of violence or mental illness. Johnston said it's possible that someone would break into their home. The Jacksons lived in an affluent neighborhood that's perfect for a home invasion because the houses are spaced out and somewhat secluded. The intruder's intent was unknown, Johnston said. Maybe he wanted guns. There were multiple guns in the home. Johnston said there's not a shred of evidence that disproves Jackson's version of events that day. The intruder likely came in and saw the gun lying on the fireplace. Maybe he had knowledge of that rifle or figured it out, Johnston said. The man shot Jan Jackson, then went upstairs and killed Melissa. He passed Alexander's room because he wasn't there. He was sleeping on the porch. The intruder then shot Sabrina twice and needed to reload. The intruder realized Jan wasn't dead, so he stood over him and shot him twice in the back of the head. That's when Alexander came up behind him. They struggled over the gun, and he shot Alexander in the foot. Johnston said the bloody footprints in the hallway showed that Jackson went down the hallway to get a belt. The pool of blood next to his bed was where he tried to put the tourniquet around his foot to stop the bleeding. Reasonable doubt is all over this case, Johnston said. He had no reason to harm his family. He asked the jury to return not guilty verdicts on the three charges. Slaughter, in her rebuttal closing, said Jan Jackson had told Alexander he needed to get a job or had to move out. He had $30 in his bank account. Is money the motive, Slaughter said? Would he inherit all the money and assets from his parents? I don't know, but I don't have to prove a motive. There's never going to be a good enough reason why he killed his family. The defense's story makes no sense, Slaughter said. The intruder intended to steal items or hurt people and just happened to pick the one door that was unlocked. But for nothing, but nothing was stolen or ransacked, she said, and if the intruder was there to hurt someone, why wouldn't he have had a weapon? The intruder executes the family but didn't kill Alexander Jackson, who is the one person who can identify him, Slaughter said. That makes zero common sense, she said. Slaughter pointed out that's what, that what's not seen in the defense's display of family photos is any recent photo. All of the photos are four or five years old. The only recent photos of the Jacksons are them laid out on a cold slab at the medical examiner's office, she said. Former GOP figures vouched for C60 before blast. Consultant, company will abide by the rules and regulations in this state, by Aaron Jordan. A former chief of staff for Iowa Governor Terry Branstad and a former Republican lawmaker helped grease the skids for C60, a company with a checkered history in other states whose Marengo plant exploded in December. In the seven months before the December 8, 2022 explosion and fire that injured 15 people and left an environmental mess, Jeff Boyink, a partner at the Des Moines Public Relations and Lobbying Firm, LS2 Group, and Branstad's chief of staff from 2010 to 2013, wrote to Iowa DNR leaders and Marengo officials at least 10 times on behalf of C60 to answer questions, allay concerns, and invite officials to tour the site, according to emails obtained by the Gazette. C60's relationship with regulators went from hostile 
an Iowa DNR supervisor said May 13, 2022, he was considering getting a search warrant because the company would not allow an inspector on site to cordial in a matter of weeks once Boink was on the job, the emails show. Learning that C6 reached out to get assistance from you and your company gives me a great deal of relief, as well as getting to hear from their consultant for the very first time was very helpful. Kurt Levetso, supervisor for the Iowa DNR's Environmental Field Office in Washington, Iowa, wrote to Boink on May 31, 2022. These responses were included in 141 emails the Gazette received as part of a request to the Iowa DNR, which now is suing C60 to force cleanup of the explosion site where petroleum products and other chemicals have seeped into water and soil. Few people knew about the large caches of chemicals that were a ticking time bomb at the Marengo site. Still, the big question is why Boink, who touted his work with prominent Iowa companies, such as the Iowa Fertilizer Company, would lend his credibility to C60 and owner Howard Brand III, who had faced criminal charges in two states. Boink did not return calls in the last week or respond to an email from the Gazette. Before permitting C60 to recycle shingles in a Marengo warehouse, the Iowa DNR wanted to know exactly how the company planned to do this, what chemicals it would use, and what waste might be created, according to emails going back to April 2022. Brand was arrested in Iowa County in April 2021 to face criminal charges in Texas for illegal dumping of shingles. He also was convicted in Lake County, Montana in 2011 of writing a bad check, records show. Colorado and Idaho officials had reached out to the Iowa DNR about environmental concerns with Brand's previous operations. Josh Sobaski of Field Office 6 will be making a site visit to the facility in the coming days, maybe this week or early next week, just to get a feel for what's happening inside and, at minimum, outside the facility, Lavetso told Marengo City Clerk Carla Mark in an April 7th email. When Sobaski went to Marengo April 13th, C60 attorney Tim Doerr turned him away. Tim stated, I had no right to be on site and that they do not intend to do anything in the future that requires interaction with the department. Sobaski wrote. Ryan Stouter, a senior air and solid waste program lead, stopped at C60 in early May and also was not allowed inside, which prompted Levetso to warn Iowa County Sheriff's Deputy Todd Sauerbrei he might seek a search warrant. Next time we go, we'll be getting a search warrant, Levetso wrote May 13th. Todd, I'll be looking you up when that happens if you don't mind. The Iowa DNR never applied for a search warrant at C60, Iowa County Sheriff Rob Rodder said. The state agency scheduled a video meeting with C60 for May 26th, at which time it expected answers about the Marengo operation. Boink wrote May 24th asking to be included. Gentlemen, wanted to alert you that LS2 Group has been retained by C60 as they navigate the regulatory environment here in Iowa in order to allow them to start up their business in Marengo. Boink wrote to Alex Moon, Iowa DNR Deputy Director, and Ed Tormey, Administrator of the agency's Environmental Services Division. I understand there is some checkered history here, and I want to assure you that LS2 Group will guide them to honor and abide by the rules and regulations in this state, Boink wrote. I think you know we have done similar work with Iowa Fertilizer Company, Iowa Premium Beef, and Lehigh Hansen Cement, and are not about to cut any quarters. Also representing C60 at the May 26th meeting was Chris Rance, a Republican who served in the Iowa House from 1993 through 2010 and a Speaker of the House for four years. Rance, now a lobbyist with PolicyWorks, a West Des Moines firm, did not return an email or voicemail for this article. Tim Hall, Hydrology Resources Coordinator for the Iowa DNR, took notes at the meeting. 
Spent shingles would be delivered by semi-truck or closed rail car and stored indoors, all noted in a May 27th email. To process up to 800 pounds of shingles a day, employees would put them on a conveyor belt, removing staples and trash, before the shingles went into a tank of liquid to undergo an ambient temperature process of dissolution. The goal was to recycle the shingles into components of oil, sand, and fiberglass, which C60 hoped to sell. Hall noted that while C60 wanted to protect the recipe of its solvent, confidentiality is not a valid reason to withhold specific chemical or process information from DNR staff. Boink followed up with state officials after the meeting. On C60, I am well aware of the issues that have arisen in other states. Please trust that I would not have taken on this work if I wasn't convinced they are committed to doing things the right way here in Iowa, he told Lavezzo May 27th. Boink in August, in August invited state and local officials to tour the facility. First, he wanted them to sign non-disclosure agreements, according to an August 22nd email. We do not sign NDAs, Tormey replied. As you know, there is a trade secret process under Iowa law which would protect information received by the DNR from public disclosure. Boink said C60 was satisfied and the tour was scheduled for November 9th. The Iowa DNR had not yet approved a permit for the site and was waiting for vital information, such as the ingredients of their solvent and how C60 would filter air emissions, emails show. Just before 1 p.m. October 25th, sparks from a welding torch ignited a tank of diesel fuel at C60, causing a fire, according to a report by Iowa County Emergency Management Coordinator Josh Humphrey. He wrote to Alonda Bacon, who tracks large chemical caches for the Iowa DNR as part of the federal Tier 2 program. I have a question about a facility in Marengo that I don't have a Tier 2 from, and I believe they should be reporting, he wrote October 26th. We had a fire there yesterday, and it was interesting, to say the least, as we had no idea what was inside for sure. When Lavezzo asked Boink October 27th about the blaze, Boink replied that the fire was small and quickly contained. State, county, and local officials arrived November 9th for the tour. They saw part of the facility, but before they could see an area with the conveyor belt and vats of chemicals, they were told there was a water leak and the rest of the tour would be rescheduled. I thought it was going well up until the point they ushered us all out of the building at 11.36 a.m., Lavezzo wrote November 9th to City Clerk Mark. I thought that was quite bizarre. We had all sorts of questions to ask them, but didn't get the opportunity. On December 5th, three days before the explosion, Lavezzo wrote to Boink to see if he still was working for C60. Boink said yes. Lavezzo expressed concern C60 didn't show the Iowa DNR the back end of operations and asked Boink to try to track down what chemicals were being used. The fire department is still concerned with Tier 2 reporting as they still don't have any clue what sort of materials are stored inside the facility. Should another fire or spill occur, they need to know what they're up against. Boink replied the same day, I will follow up with Tim on these items. The Iowa DNR record search turned up no further emails to or from Boink after December 5th, the agency said. It's unclear whether he's still working for C60. The Gazette asked C60 how it got connected with Boink and what role he played for the company. Spokesman Mark Corallo did not reply to an email and voice message. And the last article on today's front page, Lynn Auditor's Office Faces Training After Errors. Race was missing from some ballots, absentee counting initially incorrect, by Gage Miskaman. After being scolded for missing a county supervisor race on some ballots and initially reporting inaccurate absentee results in the November election, the Lynn County Auditor's Office will face mandatory training but no fines. 
The Iowa Secretary of State's office last week issued a technical infraction against the auditor after having alerted it to the problems last fall. In a letter to Lynn County Auditor Joel Miller, Deputy Secretary of State Michael Ross said that to prevent these types of errors in the future, Miller and his election staff will have to attend a mandatory training on ballot preparation with the Secretary of State's office. However, there will be no fines or other penalties, according to the letter. During the November election, about 536 ballots in the Putnam Township Precinct polling place were missing the Lynn County District 1 supervisor's race between between Kirsten running Marquardt and Mark Banowitz. The error was discovered by Banowitz himself when he went to vote on election day. Numerous Lynn County voters have contacted our office to share their concerns about this error and how it impacted them as a voter, the letter reads. They shared with our staff their feelings about disenfranchisement and concerns regarding your office's ability to successfully administer future elections. The county also experienced delays in accurately reporting the absentee ballot results, which the auditor's office attributed to a faulty network switch on a computer that needed replacing. The Secretary of State's office discovered on election night that Lynn County overreported the absentee ballots counted. We promptly alerted your office of the alleged discrepancy, and Deputy Auditor Matt Warfield was able to determine that several packets were loaded more than once on election night to your county's election management computer, the letter reads. In response to the inquiry, Miller said he would work to prevent future issues by ordering a new network switch and would create an election results upload checklist. However, Ross said a checklist already exists. We encourage you to continue working with your vendor to determine the precise root cause of the upload issue and and replace parts as necessary to prevent future issues, the letter continues. Regarding the election night upload checklist, our office already provides such a checklist to auditors. When the checklist was filled out, your staff marked that all race totals were correct and certified that they reviewed the election night reporting site for accuracy. See our school to be named Trailside Elementary, school opening in fall 2024 to replace Arthur Garfield Elementary Schools by Grace King. The newest elementary school in the Cedar Rapids Community School District opening in fall 2024 will be named Trailside Elementary School. Trailside Elementary, under construction at 2630 B Avenue Northeast, will replace Arthur and Garfield Elementary Schools as part of the district's facility master plan. The name was unanimously approved Monday by the Cedar Rapids School Board. Arthur Elementary Principal Jennifer Nury and Garfield Elementary Principal Joy Long visited each classroom in their schools to get student input on the name. They read a book called Alma and How She Got Her Name by Juana Martinez-Neal. It's a story about a little girl who wonders why her name is so long and learns the special meaning behind each one of her names. The children were very creative, Nuri said. One student wanted to name the school after their grandma because she makes such good cookies. Their reasons were all so cute. It was fun to read the submissions and why the name was important to them. A delightful experience, Nuri said. There were 80 student and staff submissions and 16 submissions from the community. The list was narrowed to six names. Staff at Arthur and Garfield Elementary Schools voted on the final six to come up with Trailside Elementary. A majority of community responses suggested the school be named after Superintendent Noreen Bush, who died in October. She was diagnosed with cancer more than two years ago, but before she died, Bush and her family requested buildings not be named in her honor, Noreen said. The plan does not include demolishing Arthur Elementary, 2630B Avenue Northeast, and Garfield Elementary, 1201 Maplewood Drive Northeast, which will be repurposed with community input. CR board members ponder repurposing McKinley. Committee explores options besides demolishing Wilson Middle School by Grace King.
The Cedar Rapids School Board wants to dig deeper in to know how in to know how repurposing McKinley Steam Academy, currently a middle school, could affect the students it serves and its surrounding community. Repurposing McKinley is part of a proposed facility master plan for middle and high schools in the Cedar Rapids Community School District. The plan hinges on voters approving a $312 million bond issue, possibly in a September vote. I feel that this is an underserved population that repeatedly expresses transportation obstacles, board member Jennifer Bortrening said. I don't want to add more barriers for students to achieve graduation. I think we need to have more thoughtfulness in our approach. You are moving a middle school out of a community that looks different from some of our other communities, board member Marcy Roundtree said. One concern is a lot of these kids walk to school, about one-third, district officials say, and removing their middle school that's easily accessible right now is going to change up a lot. The proposal from a facility master plan committee made up of school officials and community members who have been meeting for almost two years is for McKinley to be repurposed as City View Community High School, the district's first magnet high school to be opened by fall 2023 for hands-on learning. Magnet schools create a special area of study. It also could house the district's alternative high school, Metro, currently at 1212 7th Street Southeast. The new magnet school opens this fall, though a location, which would be temporary under this plan, has not been announced. The bond referendum does not include the cost of repurposing McKinley into a magnet school. Almost 500 students attend McKinley, 620 10th Street Southeast, and the school is one of the most diverse in the district. The committee also is further studying whether to demolish Wilson Middle School and build a new middle school in its place, which is what was initially proposed, or renovate the existing building. The initial cost estimate to build a new 600-student school on the Wilson site is $60.8 million, according to board documents. The school board authorized Galbraith to move forward in getting a proposal to repurpose Wilson, including a cost estimate that Galbraith said is favorable. Renovation or construction on the Wilson site would begin in spring 2027 and be completed by late summer 2029, according to an anticipated timeline. Lawmakers advance bill to keep rural hospitals open. Bill creates licensing framework for rural emergency hospital by Tom Barton of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa House lawmakers advanced legislation supporters say could provide a financial lifeline to Iowa's small rural hospitals that face closure. The Health and Human Services Committee voted unanimously Tuesday to advance a bill to the House floor that would set up a state licensing process for rural emergency hospitals. New federal rules allow rural hospitals to discontinue inpatient care and instead focus on providing outpatient service and emergency medical care through a standalone ER. Once a critical patient is stabilized, they would be transferred to inpatient care elsewhere, while patients with less acute emergencies could be quickly treated and discharged. The bill also increases the government's reimbursement rates for Medicare and Medicaid patients treated at a rural emergency hospital. Anything that we can do to help keep rural hospitals keep their doors open, and I think this will help reestablish a facility in Keokuk as well as propping up other small rural hospitals that are in danger of closing their doors, committee member Representative Thomas J. Moore, Republican of Griswold, said. Congress established the new Medicare provider designation in 2021 as means to preserve access to emergency medical care and other services in areas that otherwise would be without a hospital. Ten-year ban shall begin, but more reviews may be proposed. Republican lawmaker says conservative students report woke stuff on campuses by Erin Murphy. A legislative proposal to prohibit Iowa's public universities from offering tenure to faculty once again will be shelved. 
but not before one Republican state lawmaker warned a Regents official about what he described Tuesday as conservative students feeling unwelcome on campuses. And another Republican state lawmaker, who has proposed banning tenure in the past, said he will not introduce another such proposal this year, but will introduce a bill that takes a different approach in addressing his concerns with tenure. Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, had introduced legislation that would ban tenure and held a subcommittee hearing on it at the, at the Iowa Capitol. After hearing from multiple speakers who were all against the proposal, including a lobbyist who represents the state board that governs Iowa's three public universities and works at the University of Iowa, Holt announced his intention to stop the bill from advancing. However, Holt also gave a stern warning he urged the Regents' lobbyists to take back to the universities. I'm tired of playing whack-a-mole with these issues going on at universities, he said. I hope you take the message back. We're watching them. After the meeting, Holt detailed what he said were complaints from conservative students at the UI, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa. I've been contacted by a lot of students in my district, some outside my district, regarding, for lack of a better term, just some of the irrational, woke stuff that's going on on college campuses, the feeling that they're denied free speech if you're a conservative, Holt said. A university is a place where you're supposed to be exposed to a universe of ideas, so I don't care whether it's liberal or conservative. Those thoughts should be welcomed in a university. Branstad to be president of World Food Prize Foundation by Caleb McCullough. Former Iowa Governor Terry Branstad will take over as president of the World Food Prize Foundation, considered the preeminent award for global agriculture. Branstad, the longest serving governor in Iowa's history and former ambassador to China, said he's hoping, hoping to raise the visibility of the organization and continue to fund research into the quantity and quality of agriculture. The organization gives an annual $250,000 award to an individual for their achievements in improving the quality, quantity, and availability of food in the world, according to a news release. Cynthia Rosenzweig, an American agronomist, received the award in 2022. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, January 25, 2023, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Donald Don Manatree, 85, of Cedar Rapids and formerly of Tipton, went to meet the Lord on Friday morning, January 21, 2023, at University Village in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Don was born on September 4, 1937, in Creston, Iowa, to the late Maxine Easler Manatree and Wayne Dick Manatree. When he was 11, he moved with his parents and younger brother to Tipton, Iowa, and was a 1955 graduate of THS. After graduation, he worked in his father's business, Manatree Gas and Appliance, selling and repairing appliances. This would turn out to be his vocation, and he spent his entire life in the appliance sales arena. While in Tipton, he coached summer youth baseball team, winning two consecutive county championships, and eventually earning a spot in the state midget league tournament in Atlantic. He moved from Tipton to Cedar Rapids, where he worked for the area's largest appliance dealer, Standard Appliance Company, rising quickly to the position of sales manager. From there, he moved from the retail side of sales to the appliance distribution side. That took him and his family to Sterling, Illinois, Cleveland, Tennessee, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and back to Iowa, where he managed an appliance distributorship in Des Moines. During his career, he was instrumental in designing and manufacturing of the first microwave ovens and designed the microwave oven turntable we still use today. He also brought back the Crosley Refrigeration brand name for his dealers. In lieu of flowers, his wife, Pat, is asking friends to make a donation to University Village 
8555 South Lewis, Tulsa, Oklahoma, 74137, in Don's name. Janet Eloise Beagley West of Marion, age 86, passed on to her heavenly home on January 11, 2023, at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. We celebrate that she is now with our wonderful Lord and Savior. A graveside service will be held Friday, January 27, 2023, at 10 a.m. at Bethel Cemetery on Phillipsburg Union Road in Englewood, Ohio, where Janet will be laid to rest beside her parents and brother Daryl. Kindred Funeral Home of Englewood, Ohio, is assisting family with arrangements. Full obituary may be viewed at their website, kindredfuneralhome.com. Daniel A. Bradley, 60, of Cedar Rapids, passed away at home January 21, 2023. A memorial visitation will be held Friday, January 27, 2023, from 4 p.m. until time of prayer service, 7 p.m., at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. A burial will be held at a later date. Dan was a 1981 graduate of Benton Community High School. He enlisted in the U.S. Navy the day after his graduation. In 1987, he moved to the Twin Cities, where he lived until April 2022 when he moved back to Cedar Rapids. A favorite pastime was following Williams Brothers Racing with his lifelong friends. Dan worked for Central Station Alarm for over 30 years. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to Fisher House Foundation, an organization that helps military and veteran families. Online condolences may be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com. Larry Dean Hansen, 85, of Toddville, Iowa, passed away on Sunday, January 22, 2023, surrounded by his family. Larry's family will lead a celebration of life service at 11 a.m. on Saturday, January 28, 2023, at Usher's Ferry Lodge, 5925 Seminole Valley Trail Northeast, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 52411 followed by a luncheon until 3 p.m. Burial will be at a later date at Terrace Park Cemetery, Kansas City, Missouri. Larry was born April 5, 1937, the son of Arnold and Laverna Gunn Hansen. He served in the U.S. Army from 1960 to 62. On August 2, 1961, he married Amy Finch in West Virginia. Larry attended airline school and worked in the aviation industry, including Central Ozark, TWA, and American Airlines. On September 28, 2002, he married Carol Boydston in Platte City, Missouri. Larry enjoyed canoeing, motorcycle riding, reading, playing pool, and most of all dancing. Larry could get anyone to dance and have fun. He also attended Christian Life Church. Because of his heart for veterans, in lieu of flowers, memorials are suggested to the Teufelhund Veterans Group, P.O. Box 142, Anamosa, Iowa, 52202. John William Bear, 61, of Iowa City, Iowa, was surrounded by his family when he died peacefully on Sunday, January 22nd. Visitation will be from 3 to 7 p.m. Sunday, January 29th at Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service, Iowa City. A massive Christian burial will be held on Monday, January 30th at 11 a.m. at the Newman Catholic Student Center. Private interment will take place at a future date. Immediately following Mass, friends and family are invited to a meal at the Celebration Farm, Iowa City, where John's children will pay tribute to him. John's family suggests that memorial donations be made to Iowa City Hospice. A full obituary may be read at lensingfuneral.com. Mary Louise Cowgill, 96, of Marion, Iowa, and formerly of Packwood, Iowa, passed away on Sunday, January 22, 2023, at the Views Senior Living in Marion. Funeral services will begin at 11 a.m. on Thursday, January 26, 2023, 
at the Prairie View Church, Ali, Iowa, with Pastor Steve Lamb officiating. Burial will be held in the Packwood Cemetery immediately following. Visitation will begin at 9.30 a.m. on Thursday, January 26, 2023, at the church and last until the time of service. Mary Louise Calgill was born on September 30, 1926, in Galesburg, Illinois, to Lester and Amy Hoyer Tinkham. She attended Cameron Country School before graduating from Galesburg High School. She went on to further her education at Iowa State University, graduating with a degree in home economics. Upon graduation, she began working for the Henry County Extension Office. Mary met the love of her life, Jay Cowgill, at a dance in Sigourney, Iowa. They began their life together as husband and wife on September 3, 1950. Mary and Jay became the loving parents of two children, David and Kurt. They raised their children on their family farm near Packwood, where Mary was a hardworking farm wife. She managed everything around the home as well as helping with anything needed on the farm. Mary and Jay would remain by each other's side for 72 years until Jay's death in 2022. Mary was a seamstress and member of the So-and-So Club, as well as being a gifted poet and music lover. Memorial contributions in Mary's honor may be directed to the Prairie View Church, Packwood Christian Church, or the American Cancer Society. Friends may leave online condolences at cranstonfamilyfuneralhome.com. Philip Edward Beck, 83, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, died Sunday, January 22, 2023, at the Re Rehabilitation Rehabilitation Care Center in Lisbon, Iowa. Private services are pending. Tea and Funeral Home is caring for Philip and his family. Philip was born on October 14, 1939, the son of Edward and Margie Beck in Auburn, Indiana. Philip graduated from Auburn High School in 1957 and went on to attend Concordia Lutheran College in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he met his wife of 63 years. On December 30, 1959, Philip married Jane A. Behrens at St. Stephen's Lutheran Church in Atkins, Iowa. Philip worked in sales nearly his entire career, retiring three times. Phil was part of the Boy Scouts of America for decades, serving as a scoutmaster and ultimately earning the Silver Beaver Award. Phil was a member of Trinity Lutheran Church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and served as chairman of the congregation and several church committees over a lifetime of worship. Instead of flowers, memorials may be sent to Trinity Lutheran Church, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, or directed to the family. Online condolences can be left at tnfuneralhome.com. Robert Bob Lloyd Tuma, 94, of Tipton, Iowa, entered eternity on Monday, January 23, 2023, while at Cedar Manor Nursing Home, Tipton. Fry Funeral Home will host a visitation from 5 to 4 to 6 p.m. on Thursday, January 26, 2023. Funeral service will be at 11 a.m. on Friday, January 27, 2023, at the Trinity Lutheran Church, Tipton. Following a luncheon, graveside service with military honors will be held at 1.15 p.m. at the Stanwood Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, family will forward all memorials to the Trinity Lutheran Church. Cards and memorials may be mailed to 308 Mulberry Street, Tipton, Iowa, 52772. To view Bob's full obituary and share online condolences, you are invited to visit FryFuneralHome.com. Lori Ann Miller Harrington, 59, of North Liberty, passed away on January 20, 2023, following a long illness. A gathering for family and friends to celebrate her life will be held on Saturday, January 28, 2023, from 2 to 5 p.m. at Lensing's Oak Hill, 210 Holiday Road, Coralville, with military honors performed at 5 p.m. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be made to Friends of the Animal Center Foundation or Hawkeye Athletics. The full obituary may be read at lensingfuneral.com. 
Sandra Sandy Millicent Skelton of 85 of Cedar Rapids danced her way into heaven on January 18, 2023 at her home. Services and a celebration of Sandy's life will occur at 11 a.m. this Saturday at Trinity St. James United Methodist Church. Friends may visit with the family from 3 to 7 p.m. on Friday at TN Funeral Home. Sandy's journey began on December 28, 1937 in Dubuque, the daughter of Keith and Viola Bellings Dietrich. She graduated in 1955 from Roosevelt High School in Cedar Rapids and attended the University of Iowa and later Cornell College. On February 4, 1960, Sandy married William Terrence Skelton in West Palm Beach, Florida, and they went on to live an amazing life. Sandy was known for her belly dancing and would, and would deliver bellygrams at parties. She was known for her caring and warm personality and would help anyone and everyone she could. Memorials may be directed to Trinity St. James United Methodist Church, Matthew 25, Northwest Neighbors Neighborhood Association, or Hall Perrine Cancer Center in Sandy's name. Online condolences can be left at tnfuneralhome.com. Carol J. Ballard, 82, of Marengo, passed away Monday, January 23, 2023, at Highland Ridge Care Center, Williamsburg. A private graveside service will be held at the Marengo Cemetery with Reverend Joseph Blay officiating. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m., Friday, January 27, 2023, at Closter Funeral Home, Marengo. A memorial fund has been established. Carol Jean Young was born March 31, 1940, in Marengo, Iowa, the daughter of Leo Leslie and Norma Alice Patterson Young. She graduated from Marengo High School with a class of 1958. Carol was united in marriage to Richard Joseph Ballard on December 28, 1958 in Marengo. Besides being a wife and a mother, she worked in the office at Amana Refrigeration, the Cottontail Corner Daycare in Marengo, and Rosehaven Nursing Home in Marengo. Carol was a 50-plus year member of the First United Methodist Church in Marengo. She enjoyed singing with the believers. Carol had a passion for collecting dolls, having more than 1,500 on display. She enjoyed baking, gardening, and canning using the produce from her garden. She and Richard enjoyed square dancing and raising sailors' cattle. Willard Bill E. Bratton, 80, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away at the Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital on Saturday, January 21, 2023, surrounded by his loving family. A visitation will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories, on Saturday, January 28, 2023, from noon until service time at 2 p.m., with Jonathan Heifner officiating. Interment to follow at the Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery, Garden of Tranquility. A reception will follow at the Cedar Memorial Park Family Center. Bill was born on February 7, 1942, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He was the son of the late Herbert Charles and Helen Kozar Bratton. On July 6, 1962, Bill married the love of his life, Barbara Stuckey, in Iowa City, Iowa. He loved to travel and classic cars. He was an extremely hard worker, owning his own construction snow plowing company and being a mechanic at various businesses. Bill loved to take time to celebrate the little things in life. We'll miss his sense of humor, orneriness, along with his colorful language and stories. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made in his name to the Catherine McCauley Center, 1225th Avenue Southeast, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 52403. Condolences for the family may be left at cedarmemorial.com. That concludes today's obituaries. Moving on to today's editorial page, there is one letter to the editor today. It is from Tom Mohan of Cedar Rapids. The headline reads, UIHC nurses deserve a fair contract. Thanks to Vanessa Miller for her excellent January 19th article, Wide Gap Revealed as Nurses Push for Raises. 
Iowans need to know the many difficult challenges these compassionate, courageous healthcare heroes of SEIU face at work and with negotiating with the Board of Regents team that act mean-spirited and disrespectful and bargaining in bad faith. As an Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement, Iowa CCI member, and SEIU union ally, I attended this opening session to offer solidarity and support. I was shocked and saddened to hear of the many serious, dangerous grievances cited in Miller's article. High levels and types of violence, low staffing levels, and stagnant wages have led to growing levels of danger for staff and patients. The board's pathetic contract proposal was infuriating and insulting. Adding injury to insult, the board's lead negotiator cut out early, citing a scheduling conflict, although the bargaining session was scheduled well in advance. These SEIU healthcare heroes were on the front lines of the pandemic for the last three years and have long given outstanding care to those of us who need it most. Iowans should contact the Board of Regents and let them know we deserve the quality care these healthcare heroes provide, and they deserve a full and fair contract. That is a letter to the editor today from Tom Mohan of Cedar Rapids. There is a column, a guest column from Nicholas Johnson on today's editorial page. Here it is. Begin with budget cuts to military. Republican Grover Norquist thought government should shrink enough he could drown it in a bathtub. The current house seems to share that goal. Where should they begin? Peter Drucker was called the founder of modern management. American and Japanese businesses owe him big time for his proposed reforms. One was the concept of cost centers, tackle the big stuff. So what's the largest cost center? That's easy, military appropriations. We want to protect our people and borders. There are good reasons for having a military. The question is, how much? The administration's request for $733 billion is more than the defense spending of the next nine nations combined. Might that be figurative and literal overkill? We have 750 bases in 80 countries. Programs and operations are so vast, few, if any, know how much money went where or what happened to it. Accountants say it's simply impossible to audit the military. As the House's own website reports, the founders felt that war should be difficult to enter. They believe giving the House sole constitutional power to declare war would increase that difficulty. Members would be paying the price financially and with their children. Today, not so much. There's no draft. Congress can be generous, $64 billion for Lockheed, $42 billion for Raytheon. In return, defense contractors are generous campaign donors. This year, Congress boosted its generosity with $58 billion more than the $773 billion requested. Defense spending is designed to keep things from happening outside our borders. Civilians don't use or even touch the weapons. Domestic spending makes things happen inside our borders. The Declaration of Independence says the purpose of government is to secure our unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These rights not only increase our quality of life with things we can touch and use. Education, food, health care, housing, and highways. What's worse, there's evidence our defense spending is not doing us that much good. As Abraham Maslow wrote, if the only tool you have is a hammer, it is tempting to treat everything as if it were a nail. How's that hammer been working for us in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere? China isn't perfect. Maybe we aren't either. But China is helping build other countries' infrastructure, economic growth, and China's access to their resources. The U.S. showcasing my military is bigger than yours may create more wartime allies and wars, but few true friends. Some of America's best and brightest are at the top of the military. They know the human costs of war. They approach it with the analytical rigor of the Powell Doctrine. Questions like what non-military strategies might be better? What's our exit strategy? Why will conditions become and stay better after we leave? 
We pride ourselves on civilian control of the military. There are times when we might have better we might be better off with military control of civilians. Defense appropriations, the best place to start cutting cost centers. And that is a guest column in today's Gazette by Nicholas Johnson, who was U.S. Maritime Administrator and had some responsibility for military sea lift during the Vietnam War. Here's one item I didn't have time to read earlier from today's Capital Notebook section. Iowans could recall elected officials. Also, Landowners lobby lawmakers to restrict CO2 pipelines. I'll read the part about the elected officials. Iowa voters would have the potential to recall an elected official under a proposed amendment that advanced in the Iowa Senate on Tuesday. The amendment would allow Iowans to file a petition to hold a recall election for an elected official at the state, legislative, or county level. A petition seeking to recall a politician would need to amass signatures amounting to 25% of the votes cast for governor in that district in the previous election. Once that threshold is met, a special election would be scheduled six weeks after the petition is filed. The incumbent would be automatically on the recall ballot unless they decline within 10 days. Other candidates would need to file nomination papers to be on the ballot. 19 other states have processes to recall a politician. Senator Sherry Lynn Westrich, Republican of Ottumwa, said the amendment would be a valuable tool for voters to react if an official does something that warrants a recall. The subcommittee passed the bill two to one. Senator Janice Weiner, Democrat of Iowa City, did not recommend passage, but she said she could support a future version. The amendment would need to be passed in this legislative session, then again in 2025 or 2026, before going to a popular vote. Now we have a few minutes for sports news. Allegation, altercation, and city's game early. City High alleges racially charged comment toward its coach forfeits game at Fairfield after benches cleared by Jeff Johnson. A boys basketball game between Fairfield and Iowa City High at Fairfield ended early Monday night after an on-floor altercation with ensuing allegations being made of a racially charged comment directed toward City High's head coach by an official during the game. City High Principal John Bacon and Iowa City Community School District Superintendent Matt Denger sent an email to staff, students, and families at the school Tuesday in support of Little Hawks coach Brennan Swayzer, which was shared with the Gazette. Swayzer, who is black, had been ejected from the game in the second half, as was a Little Hawks fan. We want to share details about an unfortunate incident that occurred at last night's boys basketball game in Fairfield, the email noted. During the game, an official directed a racially charged comment toward our coach, the Iowa City Community School District never condones racism. We stand by our students and staff of color. We are also addressing an incident of physical aggression and helping our students learn better ways to handle a volatile situation. Due to the unsafe environment within the gym, our coaches decided to remove our student athletes. Our team received a police escort to the locker room, out to the bus, and out of town. While this is certainly not how we wanted this game to play out, we are thankful that the situation was de-escalated and we could safely leave the school. With two minutes remaining and Fairfield ahead 77-63, a foul was called on City High's Evan Lampy on an out-of-bounds play underneath the City High basket. Lampy then proceeded to shove the player he had fouled, Fairfield's Tate Allen, to the floor and then appeared to take a swing at him. Benches cleared and the teams were sent to their respective locker rooms after order was restored. City High then decided it did not want to play the remaining two minutes. At the end of the Fairfield versus Iowa City High boys varsity basketball game, there was an altercation between players that required coaches, officials, and administration to safely intervene, Fairfield Superintendent Dr. Lori Knoll said in a statement. 
teams were escorted to separate locker rooms for a five-minute break. During that time, the Iowa City High coaches determined it was best to forfeit the game. All students, coaches, and fans left safely. Fairfield appreciates the help from fans, officials, coaches, and Iowa City High administration in attendance for their help in de-escalating the situation. Bacon said in a text he could not publicly comment further on the allegation against the game official or the on-court incident. Swayzer was an assistant coach at City High before taking over program for the 2019-2020 season. Number four Wolves Top Solon by Jeff Linder. It took Brayson Lowby nearly eight minutes to take his first shot. Colored the Marion Wolves unfazed. Lowby eventually got his, and Kalen Claypool enjoyed a career night to lead Class A fourth-ranked Marion past Solon 68-58 in a Womack Conference East Division boys basketball game last night at Marion High School. The Wolves, 13-3 overall, 5-0 division, won their seventh straight game. We knew they were going to chase our All-State guard, Claypool said. We, we set some good screens for him. He sets them for us. He's a great screener. Lobby didn't score until a three-point play with two seconds left in the first quarter, but still finished with a game-high 26 points. As for Claypool, how about 17 points and 15 rebounds? I was looking to crash whenever I could, he said. This is a good win. Solon's a good team. They're tough every time we play them. Solon, 9-5-3-2, was still right in Marion's rearview mirror at 44-40 with seven minutes to play, but the Wolves pulled away behind a 27-point fourth quarter. Miles Davis had a pair of key fourth-quarter three-pointers and finished with 11 points. University of Iowa football recruit Alex Moda posted eight points and seven rebounds. Gary Turner led Solon with 16 points. Sean Staley and Vince Steinbreck added 11 apiece. The Spartans chased Lowby from sideline to sideline throughout the first quarter, but Claypool kept the denial from harming the Wolves. He had six points and five rebounds in the first quarter, and Marion led 18-12 after a period, 32-23 at the half. A signee of Augustana, South Dakota, Lowby got loose in the second quarter. He had 11 points by halftime, and the Wolves enjoyed a 32-23 lead. And finally, an item about Iowa State women's basketball. Every coach dreams of a kid like Ryan. Durable ISU guard leads Big 12 in minutes per game by Rob Gray. Iowa State women's basketball coach Bill Finelli has thought about locking her out, maybe turning the lights out or taking the basketballs away, anything to keep standout point guard Emily Ryan from virtually living in the Sukup basketball complex. We're going to have to come up with something, Finelli said, joking, but he can't bring himself to do it. Ryan is the most durable player for the number 18 Cyclones, 13-4-5-2. She ranks ninth nationally among Power Six programs and first in the Big 12 in minutes played per game at 35-28, and she'll almost certainly be on the floor every second she's needed in tonight's 6.30 p.m. matchup with TCU 6-12-07 in Fort Worth. Every coach dreams of a kid like that, Finelli said of Ryan, who has played every minute of a game 14 times in the past two seasons. I'm a huge Matt Painter fan, and I heard him quote something the other day. I saw it the other day, but it's like too many players value their worth with their jump shot. And that's not what Emily Ryan's about. She is a kid that wants to win the game. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, January 25th, 2023. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening. <music>